Hello, my name is Garrison Lovely, and I'm not that interesting. But this is the most interesting people I know. Conversations on science, ethics, and politics. Today's guest is Sam Miller-McDonald. Sam is pursuing a PhD at Oxford studying the intersection of energy production and political power. He's also an editor at The Trouble, a news site looking at climate change from a left perspective. In 2015, Sam co-founded Activist Lab, an online publication focused on improving social change. Sam is a prolific writer. His work has appeared in Current Affairs, The New Republic, The Baffler, In These Times, and elsewhere. In today's conversation, we touch on Sam's research, the problem of climate change, whether industrial agriculture is actually efficient, what would be in Sam's Green New Deal, whether cities are as good for the environment as we may think, the challenge of resettling the predicted hundreds of millions of refugees, dealing with the despair that climate change uniquely inspires, extinction rebellion, the role of nuclear power, and how you can fight climate change most effectively. I should warn you up front that this is a bummer of a conversation, but I'm glad we had it. I found Sam to be informed and honest about the challenge before us. This is Sam Miller-McDonald. Sam, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, happy to be here. So Sam, uh, can you just start off by describing your current research area? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's, you know, biggest, broadest would be to say it's climate and energy politics, mostly focused on a U.S. context, a little bit of U.K. stuff as well. Uh, to go a little deeper into it, it's looking at how different political forms have been impacted by different energy production forms. So, uh, you know, when you're when you're extracting energy from the environment in one way, how is that impacting the politics that come to govern a certain area? Um, and that's the kind of macro mm-hmm. level uh, of it for the, the, the micro level aspect of the research is uh, I've been talking with a lot of people who are either starting up sort of local community energy groups uh, or who are involved in like some kind of political advocacy, whether it's, you know, like the climate emergency activists uh, or eco-socialist kind of more energy transition activists from the left perspective. Mm. Um, so it's been methodology mostly has been interviews and uh, will involve some archival and, and historical stuff as well. Cool. Cool. So are you getting into like the science of it in addition to the politics or like, are you mostly focusing on like the political theory side of things? Yeah, it's most, mostly social and political science. Uh, I, you know, obviously th- there's a kind of growing subfield that's uh, like energy transition studies and you have to get into some of the just technical, you know, scientific engineering side of, of energy. Um, but I'd say most of what I'm looking at are the political dynamics and, and how you can both uh, spur transitions in technology and energy in particular uh, through political mechanisms and avenues, mm-hmm. but also how that transition impacts politics. Um, so it's kind of a, a mutual relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I remember I took Middle Eastern politics in college and we talked a little bit about how right, the resource curse and oil production relates to like governments in, in those regions. Um, and I, I don't know if you had anything like any thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably today the just kind of clearest, most uh, vivid example of how you get a particular energy source impacting politics directly. So something like the the oil curse, um, I think illuminates how you get 
uh, a resource like coal or oil or natural gas that can kind of immediately be turned into this liquid capital. Mm -hmm. You just, you put it right on an international market and suddenly you have tons and tons of money. Um, It's very easy for uh, heads of states, aspiring dictators to take control of that resource and, you know, close off access to other, uh, by other people and just start selling it on an open international market and just hoard all of the capital coming in from that. Mm. And as soon as that happens, you have, you know, someone who's able to, to purchase security, to purchase influence, uh, purchase media, um, which creates obviously a, a massive power imbalance between either, you know, elite competitors mm-hmm. to that aspiring, uh, you know, dictator or whatever, um, but also between elites and the rest of the population. Um, so I think in those in those cases where you have this this newly opened up oil field or coal field uh, and have one entity, company, administration, whatever, uh, monopolize that resource, it gives them tons of leverage, tons of power politically. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw that process happen a little bit in the U.S., uh, during the uh, you know mid to late 19th century, where access to oil fields started getting consolidated by Standard Oil mm. uh, and Rockefeller, and uh, made Rockefeller arguably the richest man in the history of humanity, and uh, Standard Oil the the most important and largest uh, energy trust, energy monopoly uh, in the country, and and just gave them considerable power leverage over the you know, Congress over the presidential administrations, um, over the media and allowed them to, to really consolidate that wealth and power for a long time. Um, obviously didn't yield a dictatorship that you see in a lot of countries today, but, uh, did yield a very oligarchic kind of government that persisted until, you know, mid, mid 20th century when you had the new deal era come in and, and start to unlock that wealth and, and, uh, and redistribute a little bit. Yeah, definitely. We'll come back to that when we talk about the Green New Deal. Um, uh, excellent. But yeah, it, it seems like, you know, uh, libertarian socialists, a lot of leftists oppose concentrations of power. And in the form of fossil fuels, you have literal concentrations of power that like translate into political action and, and uh, ability to control people, it sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the promises, I think, of a more renewable distributed energy future is you have, you know, you have the capacity to give communities and individuals the means to to produce their own energy and to produce energy self-sufficiently. And I think when you have such a energy dependent economy where your means of survival depend on your ability to access this sort of dense sources of energy, being able to produce your own gives you a lot of autonomy and and you know, it's very empowering. Yeah. Um, so I think being able to, to sort of distribute the means to produce energy really does translate a lot into the means to, you know, own your own sorts of production to, to you know, have a lot of both political and uh, just material independence and, and, uh, and self-sufficiency, which I think then results in having that kind of, you know, broadly distributed political power. Yeah. What, uh, what led you to study this topic? Uh, sorry, say yeah, what, what led you to study this topic? Um, I've, 
I've been in the sort of climate space for 10 or 12 years, and it's it's been interesting to follow the, the kind of different uh, trajectories of activism mm-hmm. in this space. And uh, I think it's, you know, there's there's been this real frustration with the lack of progress and momentum uh, to get decarbonization policies, to, to even just put a dent in emissions. And uh, for me, it's kind of been trying to navigate that activism space from a, a lot of different angles, from like entrepreneurship to just direct action to uh, yeah, writing in academia. And um, I think there's, there's a real, even in the climate space, I think a, a sort of illiteracy around energy issues, mm-hmm. energy flows, how, how they impact uh, a lot of different things. And it's understandable because it's kind of a new emerging field. Um, but I think it's it's something we've got to understand better, the politics around energy, um, the, the ways in which it influences social forms and political forms. Um, I think it's so critical to understand and critical to get emissions reductions and get real decarbonization policy uh, passed. And yeah, and I just think there's just not enough, you know, literacy and knowledge around it at this point, particularly in the climate space. And um, and also, I think there's a real strong argument to be made. Uh, you know, decarbonization can be such a difficult thing to sell as a as yeah. a policy or as, as something that's this inspiring thing to rally around. But I think when you start talking about how uh, and energy is boring too, I know, but when you start talking in a way that, you know, the shifting how this economy functions, and right now it functions entirely almost on carbon mm-hmm. energy. Um, when you start talking about completely changing the fundamental resource on which this economy is based, I think it, it reaches into so many aspects of people's lives. And you can start really talking with some fluency about how to positively positively impact people's lives by changing the energy base on which you know their entire material existence is is based and um, and I think that sort of material analysis has been really absent from a lot of the the climate politics and and a lot of the discussions uh, around decarbonization and and uh, emissions yeah, reductions. Yeah, yeah. I was just listening to uh, the policy architect behind the Green New Deal on a podcast talking about like why justice is an essential part of. Uh, the Green New Deal, and like it's also helpful for selling it as well because people might not be able to relate to the problems of climate change, but they can relate to like air quality in their neighborhood um, or drinking water access and like all these things that are absolutely related, but um, you know actually affect people in the day to day much more clearly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's hard to feel a lot of agency yeah. with climate because it's so big it's so global it spans so many you know centuries um that i think yeah connecting it to to everyday suffering that people are experiencing and not just the wildfires and the floods and sea level rise or whatever but the economic stuff you know the not being half of americans not being able to afford basic yeah. necessities at yeah. any given time you know it's 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 kind of it it's a little perverse to talk about, you know, we need to solve this big global issue through austerity mm-hmm. or whatever uh, when people are suffering. Yeah, it's also bad politics. You know, I think it's just been Absolutely. like, all right, there's going to be 
a carbon tax and that's going to like internalize the externalities of you know burning fossil fuels um but don't worry it's going to be revenue neutral and like the consumer will like get the savings passed on to them or like you know and people just like okay they don't really quite understand like what a carbon tax means i don't quite understand what that means um and it doesn't materially change our lives but like it seems complicated and people don't like new taxes for the most part and just like committing Absolutely. to making it revenue neutral instead of saying like oh it's actually going to pay for like all this great stuff that is going to help you like it's just bad politics and there's like a reason it hasn't taken off um because it's like trimmed up by economists rather than people like you know <laughs> engaging in the real world yeah absolutely i mean it it speaks to the yellow vest movement in france which right so this was sparked initially by uh, fuel tax right yeah uh, gas tax yeah totally and and people very reasonably saying like why are we mm -hmm. paying for this you know th these are if, if billionaires and wealthy people are the ones main people driving this problem the the burden should be on them primarily to be solving mm -hmm. it you know and and so while we have this extreme wealth inequality it's pretty wrong and perverse to be putting this burden on people who are already struggling already can't pay for basic necessities um and you know if if i think the yellow vest movement i think is a great example of the direction that climate activism can and should be taking uh it's it's very focused on economic justice uh it's it's very confrontational it gets a lot of attention of both the media and elites um it's you know composed of people who are you know everywhere on the ideological spectrum but who are united by this sort of economic populism and uh and there really is a sense within that community that we need to do something about climate change it just needs to not be a burden that's placed on you know the poorest people in the world and uh yeah, yeah. before we go any further can you just lay out kind of climate change as a problem you know what is causing it and what are the main solutions being floated out right now and like how dire is the situation yeah you broke up a little bit there oh just the like end. and how dire is the situation okay yeah Jeez. <laughs> i'm also upset with um, you you made me read a lot about climate change in the preparation for this and uh it's super depressing it's not a fun topic <laughs> oh it's ter it's terrible man i don't know I how know. you do it yeah it did you uh, uh probably the most read thing i've written is collapse despair did you see that piece by any chance um i don't think so which where was that published uh, that's activist lab um i can i okay. can send it to you cool. after i'll have to give that or yeah i'll include that in the show notes it's it's just it's uh one that talks about like this how do you deal with it you know how do you mm -hmm. whether you're studying it or just everyday person having to you know learn about it uh, how do you deal with the kind of knowledge of it and, and the immensity of it? Um, yeah, so just overview of climate change, very simple science. It's just carbon dioxide is a gas that by its nature traps heat. You pump mm -hmm. out a ton of it, you're going to trap heat. You can see it at a micro scale. You can put carbon dioxide into a greenhouse uh, if you want to like, if you want to make it warmer in the greenhouse for your plants. Uh, temperature goes up, you pump out the carbon dioxide, temperature goes down. So it's just this very simple kind of principle that we've known about for 150 years. Mm -hmm. um, pumping it out at an industrial scale has from burning fossil fuels, coal, gas, and oil uh, has just warmed the planet. What that does is 
disrupts a whole lot of other systems um, that are taking that are necessary for life on this planet. So um, it's melting ice caps, it's uh, killing forests, it's expanding deserts, it's uh, throwing off the weather patterns that sort of govern the, the water cycle and carbon cycle, um, making it a lot more difficult for humans to grow crops. Uh, it has all of these sort of spiraling impacts. As for the as for the uh, urgency of it, you probably saw the IPCC report very in last November or whatever. Yeah, uh, very, very scary. <laughs> very scary. Yeah, and so that was saying we need a fifty percent global emissions reductions by twenty thirty, uh, and that was a that was a fairly conservative estimate. That was you know that came from a, a very bureaucratic process where you had to uh, sort of you know satisfy everybody's concerns uh so it's a kind of arbitrary number that what it really means is we need something sooner than that we need you know 50 percent reductions now like today mm -hmm. um i think the urgency can't be overstated when you start talking about runaway climate change non-linear warning warming um so non-linear warming uh is basically just referring to these feedback loops that can happen uh once the planet reaches a certain temperature things like Arctic ice melt is just something that more of it happens and it makes the earth warmer. So the ice reflects solar radiation back into the, uh, into space that helps keep the planet cool. When the ice melts, you get less of that radiation, uh, makes the planet warmer, melts more ice. There are you know, a bunch of these kinds of feedback loops. Uh, another is like ocean life, uh, dying. O ocean anoxia this is when the ocean loses oxygen, kills a bunch of life, uh, that emits a bunch of methane. Mm. Um, another one that maybe most famous is permafrost melt. So that's the frozen soil in the tundra and taigas. Uh, when that starts melting, it releases lots of methane. Mm. Methane, like carbon dioxide, is a greenhouse gas that traps heat. Uh, the scary thing is when these things get out of hand and we can't control them any longer and it doesn't matter what our emissions cuts look like because all these other emissions are coming from all these other sources. Um, and when that starts happening, you have the, the risk of the hothouse uh, effect that was another uh, famous report that came out that, um, you know, the, the kind of furthest end of the, of the scary spectrum is it starts to look like the late Permian extinction event that happened about 250 million years ago that killed like most life on earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was just, again, you know, emissions from fossil fuels. It was volcanoes burning those. Um, what's scary is that today we're burning those same, you know, kinds of, of uh, carbon reservoirs 10 times faster than those volcanoes did 250 million years ago. Mm. Um, so it's a, uh, I think the, the, the runaway possibility is, is to me the scariest because that's when humanity really can be said to lose control of it and not have much that it can do. Uh, yeah. One of the things that people often talk about in the, the Paris Agreement really relied upon our ability to sequester carbon, to pull it out of the atmosphere and put it back underground. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, there's not really a good technology that can do that. There's not a way to do it at scale, uh, cheaply. There's this, this crazy statistic that I'll try to dig up. Um, 
basically, if we were to try to extract just the emissions that have been emitted from coal burning, we would require a pipeline infrastructure to store it that's four times larger than the current existing entire oil pipeline infrastructure. Wow. Um, so the, the, the immensity of trying to capture and sequester that carbon is just, just completely mind-boggling. And, and constructing um, those pipelines is going to require using energy, right? Exactly, exactly. So constructing, the, you know, and, and that's the other tricky thing about decarbonization and, and energy transition is that today, right now, with our industrial supply chains and manufacturing, just building wind turbines and solar panels and nuclear plants requires a lot of carbon inputs. It yeah. requires a, a very carbon-heavy supply chain and... and uh, and I think, yeah, nobody like we, we don't really have a good answer for how to meet all of today's energy demands um, or even increasing energy demands because we're, we're still we're still cranking that up yeah. with all of these alternatives. Um, and then you have like scarcity of rare earth metals like cobalt and lithium and, and all those things that are required for storing and, and uh, producing renewable electricity. Uh, so it's yeah, it's a really it's a it's a very difficult problem and yeah. uh, difficult technologically, but also politically. Yeah, it's it seems like yeah, just one of the few there are a few like global problems that when I look at them, uh, I'm just kind of like throwing up my hands. Uh, yeah. you know, Israel Palestine uh, climate change are probably the two that come most to mind. American, you know, mass incarceration is is up there as well. Um, where the more you look into it, the more challenging it really appears um and Absolutely. I, I think there's a tendency to just like you know i i purposely just have not read certain things um because i know it will really bum me out and yeah. i feel like there's not as much to do and, and you've written good stuff on like what you actually can do um and i, I do want to get to that but i also want to like i don't want to be a, not a denialist here but there's like a claim I think that like climate change will kill us all, right? This is like thrown around on Twitter <laughs> quite a bit. Um, and, you know, that's like a pretty big claim, right? And uh, I've, have you studied existential risk before or, or heard that term? Um, as like a, as like a discipline? Yeah. Or, yeah. or something? Um, no, I don't think so. So, so existential risks are basically just things that could kill all of humanity. Um, mm -hmm. And these are seen especially in the effect of altruism community as like uniquely bad events. Um, you know, the argument going like the difference between killing 99% of humanity um, versus killing the last 1%, the last 1% is actually far worse from like utilitarian standpoint because you're cutting mm -hmm. off like all possible futures. Whereas yeah. even if like 99% of the global population were to go away, there's still the possibility of like, you know, continuing meaningful, positive, util life. Um, and Nick Bostrom, the, the director of the Future of Humanity Institute at, at Oxford, actually, um, I think coined this term or at the very least has popularized it with like talks of, you know, artificial superintelligence being like a really famous and controversial one. Um, and this is like a whole kind of subfield of effective altruism. And I just, was just reading a forum post that was saying like climate change is not an existential risk. And it was very clear to say that like climate change and the effects of it will be really, really bad, um, especially if like some of the worst case scenarios happen. Um, I actually want to pull up a quote from it because like it just, yeah, 
to your point, uh, it's really scary. There's a lot of really bad consequences. A lot of people will die. But the worst effects are going to be borne by people who are um, already not well off and have been screwed over, you know, for <laughs> centuries or millennia. Um, yeah, here's a quote. Um, In conclusion, climate change will be very, very bad. Lots of people will die. Many people, disproportionately the global poor, will go hungry, get sick, or injured, not have access to clean water, or suffer from treatable or preventable illnesses. There will be many natural disasters. There will be global geopolitical instability, perhaps including wars and refugee crises. We will damage or lose many ecosystems that people value, such as coral reefs. The Amazon may become a grassland. But scientific consensus is that we it will not result in human extinction or Earth becoming Venus. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, I have some thoughts on how climate change exacerbates existential risks, um, like the possibility of like nuclear war. Um, but I, I don't know if you've heard this perspective before. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a debate right now, even in the climate community, uh, mm -hmm. to what extent is is climate a doomsday event that makes humans go extinct? Um, I tried to address the question a little bit in a piece uh, called Extinction versus Collapse. Um, mm -hmm. And I think my main takeaway from looking at that question was that we don't really know what can make humans extinct. So it's <laughs> a good point. Like, are, are we super resilient and adaptable? Or are we these fragile apex predators mm -hmm. who depend on on a you know on a, on a robust uh, biosphere? And I don't think there's a there's a clear answer to that. Uh, you know, humans have colonized most of the world and have been able to inhabit most of the different uh, ecological zones in the world, which might suggest that we're these super adaptable, you know, colonizers who can who can live everywhere like ants. Um, but then we also did that in a context of, of a lot of, you know, flourishing life and, and robust megafauna mm -hmm. and, um, and stable climate. I think if we saw the kind of extinction event that we saw in the late Permian 250 million years ago, I think the, no, I like the human body, I think just wouldn't. It's too hot, you know. There, ninety percent of life is gone. There's nothing to eat. Um, I, I think that's definitely a, an existential uh, risk. I think that's a doomsday event. But the question of whether we can get there, whether we can, you know, we're emitting greenhouse gases ten times faster than those volcanoes did, but whether we'll be able mm -hmm. to emit the quantity that they did, I think is because that was over a long period of time. I'm guessing. Yeah, it was. It was. I, can't remember the exact uh, window of time in which that occurred. Um, and I don't know if there's a number of, you know, how many tons of carbon were emitted in that event. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know what it's going to take to get there. I think what's scary about the runaway climate is, is that it's, it's plausible under that scenario that we do get there. Um, mm. But it's not certain. And I, I think that's so much of, of our understanding of how this could play out is, is really uncertain. We don't know how people are going to react to this. Like you said, uh, the possibility of increasing the risk of nuclear war is something that I think is very real. Um, you know, if, if you're talking about 
a world where there are seven and a half billion people and four billion people can't eat any longer or can't live where they have lived and they're moving. Uh, you know, if, if five million Syrian refugees could disrupt European geopolitics as much as they have, imagine a billion refugees around the world. Like, yeah. I think there there's such a geopolitical delicacy that's going to be thrown off um, by this that absolutely could um, exacerbate tensions and lead to, to some kind of global war and, and could be nuclear. But like, you know, that's the thing. Even with nuclear war, we don't know what it would take to cause human extinction. To kill yeah, like, yeah. The latest reports are it's not actually, even if we expanded all of our nukes at our peak, it would not have killed everybody on the planet, yeah. which is counterintuitive, I guess, yeah, yeah. Um, well, given how many, how much damage they totally. can do. But it's so embedded to, to think of that as the ultimate, you know, that like it's particularly, I think for people who, who grew up reading sci-fi where the nuclear winter is the main cause of, of desolation and, yeah. and everything. It's, it's so embedded in our imaginations, but it's like, actually there's not a lot of science around, the idea of a nuclear winter and actually humans have mm -hmm. already detonated like 2400 warheads uh just in in tests uh on on really? the world. Yeah, like crazy number have already of of nuclear of some kind of uh uh nuclear devices, yeah, nuclear devices yeah. have been have been detonated so it's like it's in it's how do we get climate to get so embedded in people's imagination as a possible uh, even if not extinction, a possible major, uh, you know, source of of collapse, and and uh, and I think it's starting to. I think it's starting to kind of seep into to everybody's imagination. But it uh, it's it's tough. It's like explosions are you know flashy, and climate yeah. is just the weather kind of. You know, just it's like oh, it's warmer out. That's too bad. But like. But then at the same time, the ocean is absorbing the energy equivalent to like millions of, of atomic blasts. Like it's, it's crazy. Mm. The, this, the scale is so big and yet the issue is so mundane, you know, it's, it's so yeah. boring and so massively important. And mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, to that point, I don't know what it will take to make people extinct. I don't think anybody knows that. Um, a question that I raised in that piece was, uh, how much does it matter? So I get the, I get the utilitarian perspective, you know, if there's 1%, if there's even one breeding pair of humans left, you know, <laughs> killing them is the mo is the worst thing you can do. If, if your, you know, uh, the future of humanity is, is the most important thing. Um, yeah. but from a moral standpoint right now, from where we're standing, is there a big difference between 4 billion people dying and seven and a half billion people dying. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a, it's a big, tough question. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's super interesting. And I, I guess like, I just don't know to me, it's like, what's practically going to lead to the change that we want to see. And I mean, certain phrases or like ways of framing the problem seem like unproductive to me or counterproductive where it's like, we have to do X by Y date or else we're all screwed. And it's like, what does that actually mean? You know, like if, if human extinction is off the table as an outcome, that's likely like, what are the range of outcomes and what are the things we have to do to avert those outcomes based on our best understanding with the expectation that there's like uncertainty baked in all of these um, predictions. And like, you know, we've been wrong before about uh, 
you know, overpopulation being a huge crisis in like the 60s. And like, turns out like food production grew, you know, geometrically because of like GMOs, uh, among other things. And it's just like, to me, it's like, all right, well, we passed that date. Now, I guess we'll just like party on the Titanic as it's sinking. Or it's like, no, we should just keep fighting. I I don't know. I don't know how you think about um, like the political messaging and, and the rhetorical strategies used by climate activists and what works best and what doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the last 10, 10 to 12 years has been kind of a lot of different experiments in messaging and climate activists really just trying a lot of different things and not seeing a lot of success. My, my hunch is that the, the sort of Green New Deal style politics, so the, the big visionary stuff that's, that's all encompassing, mm-hmm. that's bringing in all of these other issues that people care about and really making a credible connection between emissions, climate, decarbonization with all of these other justice issues, economic and social justice issues. Um, I think that's, that's, direction, that, that's the direction this has to be going. I think it's probably the only thing that's going to, to really uh, get any kind of traction. Um, big and aspirational, big vision, uh, talking really concretely about how fundamentally altering the economy to decarbonize it will positively impact people's people's lives. So like, how does it make Mm -hmm. their job better? Uh, You know, how does like the Republicans little thing about Ocasio-Cortez wants to steal your hamburgers. That's that's (laughs) great. That's like, that's, that's a great kind of thing that I think we need to be doing better. Um, Like Green New Deal is going to make hamburgers more juicy and succulent. (laughs) Or or clean, clean meat will taste better than uh Totally. Yeah, because factory farming is also a huge problem. Yeah, and it, and it <laughs> produces shitty meat, and I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to eat it. I want to eat nice, good Green New Deal meat. That's what I want. <laughs> and, and like, and there's so much, uh, so many ways in which this touches people's lives concretely, and we need to be just talking about that and and really just making the case that, uh, you know, Green New Deal is going to to yield higher pay. You know, and it's it's going to make your cities so much cleaner and the air fresher. And it's going to, you know, you're going to be able to, like, meet your neighbors and grow a grow carrots together or whatever. Like, it's it's going it, to in New York, that would not sell many people. I don't think bees. We don't we don't we don't know. We don't want to meet our neighbors. <laughs> oh, oh, well, you can do that, too. You can you can just it's you're, you're going to have a bigger apartment from which to exclude people. And, like, you know, I think there's, there's so many, because it's so big and aspirational and, and because I think it's meant to empower people, it's meant to say the billionaires have taken all the money, so they get to do everything they want. Laws don't apply to them. Rules don't, they can just do whatever and get out of jail free. Uh, what we're going to do is take away their money so that, that, that it's really your money because they stole it. We're going to take that away <laughs> and not let them have that kind of impunity and by doing that, give you more money and give you more power, give you more of a sense of autonomy, a, a, a more of an ability to to shape your life and and control the things that you want to be controlling. Um, and that's a Green New Deal can do that. You know, it it unlocks all that wealth and puts it back into everybody's hands and, and circulates through the economy. And um, you know, I think that's that's climate messaging, saying that we're going to take your money that billionaires stole give it back to you and, and, uh, and build more beautiful communities. Um, I think that's, that's the climate message that we need. And, um, yeah. 
yeah, it just doesn't, I don't think it speaks to people to just say like, emissions are too high. Let's not let people have cars or whatever. <laughs> like, I think it's, I don't know. There's, there's like an austerity uh, thread that I think runs through a lot of uh, climate discourse that has not been helpful. And I think, you know, decarbonization even sounds like a, we're taking something away from you or, or degrowth or yeah. whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, degrowth de is like what I was thinking of when you said that. Um, in a nutshell, this idea that like we can't continue to grow and not destroy the world um, or we can't grow the way we have at the very least. And like in some sense, like growth does is linked to emissions like pretty strongly, right? Like the fact that China and India are growing is like good for the well-being of like individual people, but it also means they're burning a lot more uh, fossil fuels and contributing to climate change. And so how, how do you, I guess, get around that issue? Um, in my mind, like degrowth is like a political non-starter for, for most people. Absolutely. Um, and I think a big part of it is just being able to describe, you know, even if the degrowth that happens is in GDP, even if there's mm -hmm. this, some a big abstract number that's, that's decreasing, that doesn't mean that people's lives get worse or that they have less or that, you know, they're deprived of good beneficial things that they want. Um, I think the trick is to be able to talk about envisioning an alternate way of, of, you know, distributing goods and, and transacting and building an economy that produces abundance, produces, uh, uh, a surplus of the things that we want time and leisure and camaraderie and fun and entertainment and food, all these things that, that are good and desirable. We can have in greater abundance than we have now. Um, even if there's an aspect of the economy that, that doesn't grow, even if, if manufacturing is deindustrialized or agriculture is demechanized, you know, even if there's less net, energy going into the economy that doesn't need to mean that everybody has less stuff or has less fun or has you know less vacations or whatever like i think being able to decouple people's happiness and joy and and pleasure and all the good things that they want in the world from that idea of economic growth is is mm -hmm. going to be necessary and and really just hitting home that things like green new deal and uh, decarbonization, all these things that, that means abundance. That, that means we have more of the stuff that we want. It just means we also have to change the structure of the economy. So it's not based on carbon energy. Um, yeah. But I mean, so I guess like to, to somebody listening, they might think like, Oh, that's all well and good, but like you're just listing a bunch of good things and saying we can have all of this and a decarbonized economy. But like, can you just take me through a little bit of, of how we actually get there? Like what you think, what would be in your green new deal? Oh boy. Um, well, the first, it, it all starts with the one difficult fact, which is that we have to stop emitting greenhouse gases if we want to live. So mm -hmm. just setting aside all the nice things that we want. If mm -hmm. we just want to continue having organized life on earth and having the, the possibility of a civilization on earth, uh, then we have to stop emitting greenhouse gases. If people don't want that, 
okay, maybe that's a that's a discussion to have. Maybe people don't want organized civilization. Um, I think on, we might exclude those people from the conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's probably fair. Uh, I think there are a bunch of them, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, you know that. So that's the first reality. Any kind of policy, anything, anything we do has to confront that reality, and it has to just immediately cut emissions. Mm -hmm. However, you want to do that, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. Um, and I think I, you know, again, I don't think anybody really knows what that's going to take. It's, it's the difference between an agrarian economy and an industrial economy. It's a massive transition. It's a massive change that has to happen. Mm. We can't just keep having a nice industrial economy that we've had for the last 200 years. And just like plug in some batteries and solar panels, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it means completely rebuilding the way the economy functions. And, uh, it, it means a massive transition to something else that transition can be imposed on us. If we don't do anything now and we just let emissions continue, then we'll probably be forced into some regression to like an agrarian economy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a very, I think, plausible scenario. If we actually exercise some autonomy right now as a species and start to build an economy that we want, start to build a different kind of mode of production so it's not a carbon industrial mode of production, then I think there's the possibility of envisioning something that's, that's progress, that's better, that's uh, more equitable, and it's you know, more ecologically sound and all these good things that we want. But it starts with envisioning that, and it starts with saying we want something that's different from an, an industrial carbon economy. Mm -hmm. um, so what's, I mean, what's in a Green New Deal? There's so many things. The New Deal was massive. It had like 60-something programs, right? Green New Deal has to be a lot bigger than that mm. because whereas the New Deal was uh, – fortifying industrial capitalism the new deal was a way of of ensuring that the industrial carbon mode of production got even more efficient got even bigger what a green new deal has to do is dismantle it and replace it with something else and that that means it has to be a lot bigger and it has to be a lot more fundamental and um i think it's it's hard right now like there are a few good policies that we can start talking about and and say need to be in there um, but it's hard right now, I think, to have a comprehensive idea of what that kind of policy package needs to be when it's so big, mm -hmm. when it's more than 60 new programs or whatever, when it's, you know, moving way more capital than the new deal moved. Um, I think just to throw out a couple of things that, that need to be in there, I think, uh, you know, one would be subsidizing small farms. Hmm. Uh, right now, all of the economic incentives are pointed to consolidation of farmland, uh, and consolidation of food companies. And I think that's been really bad for so many things for, for public health, for the economy, for uh, animals, for carbon emissions, for all of these different environmental indicators like deforestation and, and air pollution and whatnot. Um, Can I just ask and follow up on yeah. that? Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess like my understanding basic economics uh, is like economic economies of scale exists like when you have, uh, you know, 10 farms making the same amount of food as one farm, I could see ways that the one farm could actually make more food like per unit of input. 
Um, so I guess it's like not intuitively true to me that like if we're thinking about efficiency, um, you know, setting aside the carbon question, like it seems like consolidation would actually yeah be be better for maximizing your output. I think the the efficiency of um, of agriculture and the the sort of uh, economies of scale is really interesting and helps to illuminate I think the difference between uh, an industrial agriculture that we have and a decarbonized sustainable agriculture that we need. Um, so if you wanted it, we can we can certainly talk about that if you think that's within the scope of what we're let's do it talking about. All right. Um, mm -hmm. Industrial ag is is super interesting. First of all, yeah, you're right. If you have a mechanized process of, of growing food, it's going to be very efficient in some ways. It's going to require uh, less labor, fewer people, you know, fewer hands doing the doing the work. Mm -hmm. It's going to require uh, less inputs in all the sort of peripheral aspects of growing food, like trying to take care of pests or uh, you know crop rotation or whatever. It's going to make it a lot easier to just manage the the environment around the farm, um, and if you look at industrial ag today in the U.S., it's incredibly efficient. I think the the question is who it's efficient for, and who's benefiting from that efficiency. And so, when you have a, a case where a few farmers, a few you know food production corporation owners, are reaping a lot of the benefits of that efficiency, and you have a, a lot of other farmers who are committing suicide. Uh, it's I think the top um, has the highest rate of suicide of of all professions. It's it's like twice veteran suicide wow. rates well, more, in the US. more than lawyers. Also, that's like, it's, <laughs> I kind of something. That, that actually... I think it's quite high for lawyers. So. Oh, geez, yeah, <laughs> shouldn't laugh at that. Yeah. Um, uh, those dead no, those yeah, dead and... lawyer jokes have a bit of a darker tinge now. Yeah, yeah, totally. Geez, yeah, no, I didn't know that. Um, it's super high. I think it's. I think I recently read something, and uh, I believe it said it was the highest. Wow. Um, whatever. The, it's very, very high, mm -hmm. and that's because of this consolidation that's happening. It's because small farms are going out of business. The farmers are, are losing their land, losing big chunks of the land, or they just can't make enough money to survive from the things that are growing. Um, so they're not benefiting from efficiency. The the labor, often migrant labor, that's that's you know, disenfranchised, doesn't have representation, doesn't have any means of protecting themselves. Uh, you know, they're not benefiting. They're, they're underpaid. They're exploited. They're working in very harsh conditions. They're not benefiting from that efficiency. Um, I'm living in the UK right now and food's way cheaper than in the States. Really? You, you know, um, and I, yeah, it's, it's weird. I always thought the U S has, ah, oh, they have pretty cheap food. That, yeah. Not really. It's, yeah, it's 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 way cheaper than the state. So I I don't even know if the customers are benefiting from that efficiency. Um, but there might be one dude, you know, who's who's raking in some <laughs> some good dough who's benefiting from that. Um, and there's also it's it's weird it's a weird issue efficiency because I am writing this piece that hopefully will come out soon on this that. Uh, try to break down the life cycle of just packaged salad greens mm. as a commodity. And 
I found something like 30 points in the process of growing them to disposing of them where fossil fuels take place. So 30 inputs of, of fossil fuels just to, to grow. It's the most basic. It's just a leaf. It's literally like you're growing a leaf in the ground and eating it. And that's it. It's like not like Cheetos or pizza or whatever. <laughs> it's not like some super complex, you know, if that's, I don't know if that's complex. <laughs> I think Cheetos have um, like a lot of things in them. <laughs> yeah. It, like that's a whole industrial process to create a Cheeto, right? Mm-hmm. You have like, you need, you need a lab and a guy in a lab coat to, to make a Cheeto. Mm-hmm. But a leaf is just the most basic like food element I can think of. Yeah. And, and you need 30 inputs of, you know, industrial processing uh, of, of fossil fuels to get that leaf from the ground that it was grown in to the the garbage truck that it eventually ends up in. Mm. And that's just like, it's amazing to me. I don't know. It's like, on one hand, it's super inefficient and it's, it's just insane amounts of waste and insane amounts of energy inputs to produce this, like the, the caloric energy that you're getting from that leaf is way, way, like, I don't know how many, but orders of magnitude less than the caloric energy you're putting in to yep. grow the leaf, right? Yep. That's inc- from an energy standpoint, incredibly inefficient. Um, but again, it's like, it's, it's benefiting one dude somewhere mm-hmm. to do it that way. And, um, you know, you have to, it's, it's meeting the food safety regulations and it's, you know, I don't know if you have this super cheap, super abundant source of energy, coal, oil, and gas, mm-hmm. you can waste huge amounts of it just to grow a little leaf that most of which is just going to end up in the trash anyway. Um, so it's, it's a really messed up food system. It's it makes no sense. Um, when you start looking at an alternative, a sort of small distributed, you know, local, nice little idyllic farm, from an abstract economic standpoint, maybe it's less efficient. Uh, you, there's more labor inputs that you have to do. Uh, you're going to have to be, you know, going out there and and figuring out how to deal with pests without a petroleum derived pesticide. Or, you know, you're going to have to be composting and and cultivating manure instead of a petroleum derived fertilizer. Um, you're going to have to be diversifying your crops instead of, you know thousands of acres of one palm oil tree or whatever, you're going to have to have uh, a, a lot more complex um, uh, a crop composition. Mm-hmm. And, and that does require a lot more inputs um, and you're going to be growing less, you know, like, like the, if, what fossil fuels have done have allowed us to grow a lot more food. So you were talking about overpopulation didn't pan out to be a problem because in the sixties you had the green revolution that, you know, you could, you could suddenly uh, grow a lot more per acre than you could before. And that's totally thanks to fossil fuels. And, you know, I think that's, that's one of the trickier areas of, of decarbonizing is how do you get these high yields without that input? And I think it's, it's not that you can't, it just means we have to put a lot more energy into growing food, yeah. uh, personal like labor energy, a lot more thought into it, a lot more, uh, a lot more of our focus into it. We can't just have one guy on a giant tractor, mm-hmm. you know, cultivating giant tracts of land. 
uh, for soybeans that we turn into Cheetos or whatever. Um, and I think it's, it's scary because it's food and food is so fundamental to life. And, you know, you, it's, it's all of these recent social, uh, unrest that's been happening in, in Syria, in, in Libya, these are all, you know, every spring is all coming from food price shocks. Mm. Um, and it's a super scary thing to to be meddling with the food system. Yeah. I was living in Edinburgh last winter and we got like a few inches of snow and it shut down the the food trucks and the uh, the supermarket nearby was like the produce shelves were mostly bare and like they didn't have milk and eggs for you know a week or two or whatever just from a little snow, oh. you know, and and that and that's scary to to see how dependent we are on this this really complex uh, supply chain. It's really complex food system, um, but the alternative is so much better. You know, it means like the amount of pollution, air, water, land is plummets. You know, it means like I was saying, the 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 burgers are more succulent. You know, the 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 quality is just better. Um, it maybe means that more people go and work on farms. It maybe means that that's a greater part of the lifestyle of the average American. Um, but that doesn't have to be bad. Like, <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's great to be out in nature. I learned there's so much like nature deficit disorder. Yeah. You know, there's, there's so much disconnection. There's so much like people have screen poisoning and, you know, fluorescent light poisoning. You know? Yeah. And I, it's it's so funny how like uh you know we went from like what a quarter over much more of our workforce working in agriculture to like less than one percent now in the united states and then you have like these like kids who go to college and then they graduate and then they go around the world working like organic farms uh i did that yeah i know it's just like (laughs) i'm sure uh the people who like you know were farmers in the 1920s would be like wait you don't have to work on a farm and you are choosing to (laughs) yeah totally yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was my internship in college was to go work on a on an organic farm to like learn how how like how do you do this? Like, if if this food system collapses, I want to know how to do that, whatever. But like, if you have this sort of federal subsidy, if you have some kind of policy embedded in this that allows people to go and and grow food at a at a level that they can live comfortably, um, at a level that's above subsistence, and provide this superior, more healthy, you know, more sustainable food. I think that's a great policy. I think if, if you start working against all of this economic momentum and policy momentum, uh, that's all pointed towards consolidating agriculture, industrializing, mechanizing, all of that. If you start breaking that down a little bit and just turn the incentives back toward small distributed farms, I think it, it has a lot of benefits just concrete benefits in people's lives, um, like better food, like better air quality, better water quality, uh, better land use policy, um, land use practices. And, uh, so that's, that's one of those little, little, little things that I think can go a long way. And, uh, I think figuring out how to talk about that, how to, uh, to, to, you know, do the messaging that sells that in a way that's meaningful to people is, is really important. Um, and it's something that's kind of, 
not present enough. I think in the in the climate discourse world right now, mm-hmm. uh, there's all the focus on like, oh, we got to cut emissions, we got to you know whatever, but not as much about envisioning what a, a better food system looks like or or what a better you know. Uh, oh, in the same issue mm-hmm. that that your piece was just in the the city uh, of tomorrow. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was trying to do that, trying to just envision like what is this better decarbonized city look like and and how does that really impact people's lives day to day and and i think the more we can be talking about that and envisioning that uh the further we'll get with decarbonization policy yeah so can we talk about cities for a little bit because uh, my my understanding was that like cities are counterintuitively like much better for the environment than uh you know suburban american life um which you know having lived in both now i totally see it you know I, i went from living in suburban pennsylvania uh having a lawn we didn't water it, but, you know, got rain or whatever, but like landscaping, uh, driving, you know, 10, 15 minutes each way to school um, in a car that's, you know, burning gasoline. And it's a much bigger house than I would ever have access to in New York. Um, it's just like, yeah, so much waste. Whereas like now I don't have a car. I take public transit. Um, I live in a very small apartment and there's no window in my bedroom. So keeping it like heated is actually pretty easy. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just like much leaner operation than than it was living in before and so you were actually saying that like cities i guess just like talk through like how cities are actually not uh carbon efficient and how how they could could be yeah absolutely so yeah what you're referring to is is these sort of per capita emissions uh and you know per capita carbon footprint or or, uh you know footprints Mm -hmm. um and yeah, you're, you're totally right. I think it's it's easier to reduce your personal carbon footprint living in a city where you have this great public transit infrastructure, uh, where you have much smaller space that you're inhabiting, much less energy that you're personally consuming, and therefore, you know, less emissions that you're personally emitting. And I think that's true. Uh, you know, I grew up in a place where you kind of you had to drive just to get food. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and that's the, you can't even walk to a place where you can access food um, or like it takes way too long and, you know, snows a lot in the winter. So, um, so that's true. I think what that piece was trying to argue is that the way in which we do cities right now is very carbon intensive and very high emissions. Um, So for instance, a skyscraper is a thing that can't, really exist in a decarbonized world. The way in which we build skyscrapers right now requires so many inputs of fossil fuels Mm -hmm. at so many different places in the supply chain, uh, from harvesting the ore and steel and everything that you need to, uh, to physically make those materials, to shipping those across the world, to then powering the vehicles that construct it, to then just keeping the lights on, keeping the water pumped through this massive structure. Um, all of those require tremendous amounts of energy. So cities are some of the largest sources of emissions and energy consumption. Mm. Um, and, you know, there are thousands of new cities have been sprouting up in China in the last 15 years, uh, which is crazy. There are thousands of cities. <laughs> and all of these are due to just this massive uh, influx of energy in the form of coal, oil, and gas. Um, into that economy and into their their infrastructure, 
in that amount of time. If you didn't have that energy source, those cities wouldn't exist, couldn't exist. Mm -hmm. um, so I think what we have an opportunity to be doing now is, is reconsidering how we build cities, both existing ones and new ones. And particularly since basically all coastal cities are going to have to be abandoned. That's almost certain at this point. Um, that means hundreds of millions of people will be displaced. Billions of people will be displaced and will have to move from the coast. That will take time. You know, this is based on projections right now. The, uh, the displacement. Yeah, so of I think what's, yeah, yeah sorry, sorry. There was a little lag in yeah. the audio. Um, yeah, so uh, just based on the emissions that are baked into the atmosphere right now, there's going to be sea level rise sufficient to uh, considerably impact most of the world's coastal metropolises. Oh. I think the, the trajectory we're on, which is four degrees, is like catastrophic, is just they're all gone. They're all underwater, mm. um, all the largest coastal cities. Um, Boston, New York, Miami, wow. et cetera, Shanghai, Beijing. Um, so what that means is, is this massive migration that's already starting, like people are already leaving Miami. Uh, there, there's already this, this, uh, shift away from, from, uh, and it's, I don't think it's bigger than the shift than the movement to these places, by the way, I think there are still tons of people moving to these places that are uh, that are threatened. I mean, and by the way, New York, I think is obviously less threatened than Miami. Mm -hmm. Um, thank so, God. So yeah. you're good, you're good for a while. <laughs> I mean, to New Yorkers, uh, you know, nothing else really exists or matters. So, you know, it's yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I mean, there are, uh, there's tons of critical infrastructure there that is, uh, vulnerable, um, to every hurricane. Mm -hmm like the subways. I mean, yeah, and, I almost had to move because of uh, the L shutting down because the tunnels just flooded due to Hurricane Sandy. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, totally. So there's, there's, you know, there's a real opportunity, I think, to be reimagining cities, redesigning, rebuilding. Um, there are all these old Rust Belt cities that are not, uh, that have a population that's that's been considerably decreased mm -hmm. in the last 15, 20 years that has more space, more infrastructure than, than, uh, is needed for the number of people. Yeah. There. Like Detroit um, being a famous example. Yeah, totally. Uh, so, but then that, that whole process of migration of resettlement is so fraught politically that if that's just, you know, if you have a sort of brutal capitalist fascist, government that's governing that, then, you know, who gets left behind? Poor people get left behind. People of color get left behind uh, to li like literally just either die in these places mm -hmm. uh, that are flooded or burning or whatever, um, or just don't have access to the, the new high value real estate that uh, is popping up in Cleveland or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I think how that transition is governed is in incredibly important. And that's another area of the Green New Deal that I think needs to be really comprehensively fleshed out is, is uh, what does that migration look like? How do we ease it? How do we make it equitable, uh, safe? Um, how do we rebuild these cities? What policies are going to help us uh, build something better than the cities we have now? And, you know, a lot of that is, is 
going to come down to municipal politics and what happens at those cities. But I think there also has to be a federal level participation in mm -hmm. that um, or else you're going to have a lot of, of bad things happening, a lot of, a lot of violence and, and uh, a lot of people left behind. Yeah endangered situations yeah you've uh, you were in a video uh with the bbc on climate anxiety um and i just really related to it because when i was doing the preparation for this this interview i was like just really getting depressed frankly about the future and i would like mention it to a friend and he'd be like oh I, i've been like depressed about the exact same thing and it's like whoa like it's i guess reassuring that i'm not like a crazy person um the metaphor you use in the video is like you see a comet that's going to destroy the earth and it's like on its way and nobody else sees it or is, you know, cares. And it's like obviously a dramatic example given the timescales we're talking about, but it is a really scary future. And this gets me down in ways that reading about the risk of like thermonuclear war or uh, artificial intelligence or synthetic biology killing all of us like doesn't. And I think it's because it's just like, I will live to see this stuff come to pass. Um, and it, it seems to be like, this is where things are going. Whereas like nuclear war, it's like, it either happens or it doesn't. If it happens, I'm going to be killed because I live in New York. <laughs> um, and <laughs> if it doesn't, then I don't know how bad it would have been. Uh, artificial intelligence is a ways off and it's like not even clear what that would look like. Um, but the idea of just, yeah, just like, almost like being like horribly injured in wars in some ways, like worse to imagine than, you know, just being killed. Cause you're just, that's it. Um, and I, how do you recommend people like deal with this kind of anxiety that just like this existential dread for, you know, maybe we won't all die, but like things will get a lot uglier than they have been um, in our lifetimes. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's a big question I've been dealing with for a long time. I'd say two things probably help the most. And one is talking about it and reaching out to people and, and doing, you know, what you did and, and discovering, oh, other people are concerned about this. Other people do think about it. It doesn't feel as lonely and isolating. If you're able to just reach out and be like, isn't this scary and bad? And uh, I think the second thing is, trying to get a sense of control over it. So it's so big. I think part of why it's so depressing is because it feels out of our control. It feels like it's this, it's, you know, it's coming from millions of exhausts. You know, it's not, it's not one bomb or even a thousand bombs. It's millions and millions of little tiny bombs all over the planet. And, and so much of our sustenance depends on those little tiny mm -hmm. bombs. Yeah. It's know? helping it's, us. It's, it's like, uh, I mean, if nuclear power were yeah. more uh, in use, it would be like a similar scenario where it's like, this thing is really, really helpful and essential to living, but also could kill all of us. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's this slow motion tragedy where we kind of see it coming, but we can't stop ourselves. We just we need that sweet <laughs> oil. And, and it's, uh, yeah, I think the way, and so getting control of, of it, getting, getting a sense that you have some little part that you're playing or some little way in which you're nudging this. Um, and, you know, I think it's, there are a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. Some people it's, it's changing the, you know, their diet or their, their consumption patterns, um, not flying. Uh, I think for other people, it's joining a movement and really trying to be a part of a sort of uh, political community that's trying to get systemic change. Um, 
I think in my mind, the best thing that people can do is that is, is joining some movement, whether it's a, a boycott of meat or whether it's a boycott of airplanes or whether it's, you know, going and sitting in Nancy Pelosi's mm-hmm. office, whatever it's, it's, whatever that campaign is or that movement is, I think that's probably the best thing you can do is just go and, and find other people trying to do it, do something, uh, and, and join them. Um, yeah. And, uh, whiskey doesn't hurt. (laughs) Endorsing drinking the pain away. Uh, I mean, it's only with your buddies. Yeah. Yeah. Only, only at the, at the, at the protest. Yeah. Um, what, uh, yeah. What are your plans post, uh, when, when are you expected to finish your PhD? I'm hoping next year. I, that's, that's the, I want to have the dissertation submitted by maybe next winter. Um, hopefully have a book come out of it. That'd be nice. I'm working on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're, you're a wonderful writer. Enjoy, enjoy your pieces. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, and yeah, so post, yeah, sorry. I, I haven't, I haven't gotten the new current affairs. Issue oh, it yet. takes forever. It, it, yeah. it, the online version will be longer actually. Um, and include, oh, yeah. uh, another like, 2000 words on psychedelic capitalism, which just couldn't make the cut. Nice. Should I wait for that? I it probably, or, or yeah. The, the art is yeah. beautiful, but that you can just see when it gets there. Um, cool. Cool. Yeah. I'm excited to read it. Cool. Thank you. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That, that was a more hopeful piece. Um, and I actually think there is a relation um, for listeners at home referring to, uh, we both have articles in the latest Current Affairs magazine, which everybody should subscribe to. And uh, Sam wrote about the city of tomorrow. Um, I wrote about psychedelics and their potential impact on our politics and uh, capitalism. And uh, yeah, I, I see them as a really essential tool in building a more global consciousness and helping people care about like nature and people who aren't them who don't look like them. And, uh, they're not going to be the salvation that we're looking for. Nothing by itself will be, but, uh, there's a lot of evidence that they actually do help open people's minds in in the right ways. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think just, just being able to have something that builds that bridge between our very human concrete worlds to the natural world or the, you know, wildlife, other life that, that lives on this planet, I mm-hmm. think is, is incredibly valuable and, and important. And, and yeah, I think sometimes opening the mind, opening the imagination to that is, is, is so necessary. And so, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So post PhD, um, are you going to academia, activism, government? Yeah, I don't know. See the academic job market's so rough right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, right now just trying to write a bunch and, and try to build up some of those, that, that, that portfolio. But yeah, I don't know. I'll just have to see what, see what's out there. See what's available. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I mean, it sounds like the movement in the United States could, uh, use people like you. Um, I think one of the criticisms I've seen of like the green new deal, having it not even be a policy yet, but it's like pie in the sky or like this would bankrupt the country or I even have heard more good faith arguments from people who really know the energy side of it, which is like, you know, retrofitting every building in the country could actually be like uh, an increased amount of carbon being emitted um, or other things like that. And 
I think there's just a, a dearth of like really good policy um, expertise on the left, just because we've been excluded from power for for so long and don't have you know our network of think tanks and uh, academics and everything else that uh, more mainstream political movements have had access to in the past. So, would would love to see your your work being integrated in a in a real way there. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I, w- I would love to to get more involved in it in the states. It kind of does feel a little like exile uh, sometimes to, <laughs> to not not be able to, you know, get get more of my hands in the U.S. stuff. But it's been nice also to be here when Extinction Rebellion has started getting. Uh, they started here and and go to, going down to London has been uh, has been nice too to to just participate a little bit. But, Can you talk about yeah. that? Extinction yeah, Rebellion. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, and just just real quick, also uh, to say that I think you're absolutely right that a lot of the um, talk around the Green New Deal right now is just a little bit deficient on some of the just very complex, you know, technical aspects of of how you do this, how you decarbonize, yeah. whatever, and um, and even just having you know very simply things that are. Uh, mandating that we keep fossil fuels in the ground you know that we that we're not burning more emissions so like you can you can implement as much energy efficiency as you like you can put out as many solar panels as you like but as long as you're not if you don't have something that's stopping fossil fuel extraction and emissions it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. you know and and that's that's something that i think is has been neglected a lot in the green new deal discussion um but so Extinction Rebellion, yeah, um, it's, uh, I think what I, the way I understand Extinction Rebellion is that it's this pivot toward a much more confrontational climate politics. So it's it's going and closing down roads, it's going and confronting fossil fuel executives mm. at their nice little fancy dinners. Uh, it's people gluing their naked bodies to the glass in parliament. You know, it's, it's this, this very like, oh, and, and the just embarrassed faces of all the MPs is, is wonderful. wonderful. I heard about the bum smudges, um, on the the doors and windows. That's, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I think it represents a real sort of, uh, turning up of, of just the pressure and the, the, uh, sense of emergency, mm-hmm. you know, for the, I think the last 10 years, the climate movement has been a little bit, uh, a little bit complacent, a little bit like, you know, cap and trade might do it. Carbon tax might do it. Divestment. Yeah. Let's do divestment. And all that stuff is good and fine. And like, I've, I've been a part of that. It's not, I'm not like standing outside it saying like you all look bad. Mm-hmm. Like I've also been a part of that and, and being too complacent about it. And, um, I think people are finally saying like, we just got to shut stuff down and, and we got to, you know, stop, uh, pipeline development. And, uh, I think XR is one of these climate emergency groups along with like climate mobilization and sunrise movement, um, that are really trying to, to take a more aggressive approach to, uh, stopping emissions to, to raising the, the, uh, to bringing this into the public debate and bringing it into the political agenda more than it has been. Um, and, uh, I think that's great. I think in the, Anglophone world, it needs to go farther than it has. I think the uh, XR and Sunrise and, and everything has been great, but I'd, it's not enough. It's still a pretty small, insular group of people. Um, it's still fairly uh, niche, you know, and I think it needs to be a lot more mainstream. 
I think it needs to be incorporating a lot more uh, labor justice, economic justice. Uh, it needs to be doing general strikes, and it needs to be rioting. You know, I think um, I think there's a lot still that these kinds of movements have to be doing before they're really going to be taken seriously. But having the conversation start turning toward Green New Deal policy, I think, is a great sign, and I, I think that's. Um, it's, it's going in the right direction. It's just got to go faster. Yeah. I mean, so I guess I, I have questions of like tactics and of efficacy. Um, so like riding, for example, I feel like that could undermine the movement's credibility in the eyes of like very serious people. Right. Um, and be yeah. like the tactics could get used as a distraction from like the, the meat of the issue. So is there any fear there? I think if it's done in a niche way, I think if it's just a few climate activists sort of like going out being these, you know, lone disruptors, uh, that might be alienating. I mean, I, am not super concerned about the very serious people because I, I think they have a, a very real, you know, uh, willful agenda to avoid decarbonization because it's dramatically, you know, destabilizing to the status quo. And I think they're guardians of the status quo. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I don't know if, if how much we need to worry about them, but I do think, yes, there's a risk. If it looks like it's just a small fringe of people going out and smashing windows or whatever, mm -hmm. maybe not the best way to go. But if it's, if it's a mass movement, if it looks like it has this sort of cross ideological appeal, if you're getting people in, you know, rural Missouri or whatever to be, to be participating in this to, in, and to be disruptive, um, then I think it, it could be more, uh, more effective as a tactic. I think, you know, just looking at the yellow vests in France, and this is this sort of cross ideological and it, it is uh, working class and economic populist. Um, and I think they have seen a lot of success. They, success. They've, they have pushed the French government. Um, I don't think it needs to be a carbon copy of that, mm -hmm. but I think something that's more mass, that's more uh, focused on economic justice, economic populism, and uh, something that's that's more uh, confrontational, I think, is is necessary. I think we all need to be acting like this is an, an existential emergency, you know. And even if extinction isn't on the horizon, collapse is civilizational collapse is, and people are saying it, but I don't think many people are acting like yeah. it. And uh, I think that's we, we need to start acting like we're as terrified as we all are. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I have some friends in the animal welfare movement, and they. Um, the ones focusing on factory farming in particular. And one of them posted on Facebook something like uh, about the need for disruptive like activism, that kind of how you're describing. And the argument is like, if you think that factory farming is the greatest moral atrocity happening on this planet right now, which like many animal activists uh, agree with, I, I would agree with myself, but then you're not like, fighting it like the way you would fight the Nazis <laughs> and is there's like yeah, this yeah. discontinuity. And I think it's like, uh, actually not as persuasive to people because like a lot of the arguments go like, well, if you really believe that you would do X, Y, and Z. And so he was supporting like Australian activists doing similar kind of like disruption, like road closures and, um, for animal welfare. And, uh, it sounds like you're arguing similar tactics and you're both like people who I think really understand the politics of, of these kind of issues. So, it's interesting to see convergence there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when I see on Twitter some like liberal resistance leader talking about how Trump is like a total fascist and, and is the worst and we need to get rid of Trump. And then it's like, yeah, Pelosi, vote for all of Trump's policy, like vote for all of Trump's, you know, national defense spending mm-hmm. increases and vote for all of Trump's like expansion of the surveillance state. I can't take them seriously. Yeah. I, I can't believe that they actually don't want Trump or that they actually are like upset that Trump is a fascist or whatever, or, you know, when they're attacking or not defending, you know, uh, a Muslim congressman. Oh, Omar. Yeah. Yeah. Against, against an incitement to violence. Like it's just, <laughs> I mean, they, they... it's hard to take them seriously. And I don't want to be like that. You know, I don't want to be sitting here being like climate change is going to kill us all. And then just not, you know, do anything about it or not have my actions, uh, commensurate with the rhetoric that I'm putting yeah. out there. Yeah. That's yeah. That's it's tricky because it just asks so much of you, um, to take this on yeah. and, it's just like, yeah, it's a lot to spend your time reading about and working on. And it's the global public good problem where, you know, we would all benefit from a solution, but nobody would benefit so much that they're willing to pay for it or invest in it. So you need to rely on like the altruism of, of people like you who are doing the actual activism and, and getting out there. Yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I like. I want to. I want to think that most people would be happy to come on board and sacrifice, and and act altruistically when they know that it's going to be effective. Yeah. And I think that's that's been such a uh, a struggle in the movement is to prove to people that these things that we're asking them to do are going to be effective. And and when you are talking about this big apocalyptic problem. And then you're, you're either asking people to like, you know, just, just recycle or just change your light bulbs or, you know, drive less or whatever. Um, it's hard to take that seriously when the scales of those two things are so, so yeah. off. Uh, and I think if, if people could see their sacrifice actively playing a part in addressing this issue, I think a lot of people would be willing to, to sacrifice and, and, uh, and and act altruistically if if they know that it's gonna you know make the difference. It's gonna yeah. help people. Yeah, I mean, yeah. helplessness is like you know probably one of the biggest uh, or the belief of helplessness is probably like one of the biggest causes of inaction in the face of crises like this. And convincing people that uh, we actually can succeed. Um, I've certainly never felt more hopeful on the issue than when the Green New Deal started being discussed actively. Um, because before that, there was yeah. no rallying cry. There was nothing. It was like, oh, like a uh, carbon tax and like uh, carbon capture, maybe that like we don't know if it will work. And just there's nobody really pushing yeah. for it in a in a meaningful way. And it was like under discussed on the debate stages, in the Democratic primary, and just yeah, yeah just wasn't being. There's no viable future for for the movement and for us as a result. But now, totally, yeah, I think that's that's a great point. That absolutely, I think. Uh, you know, when the Waxman Markey cap and trade bill, uh, came out 2008 and nine, there was no grassroots movement around it. People didn't care because I think they looked at it and they're like, what are you talking about? That's really going to solve this problem. But, but I think, yeah, you're right. A green new deal is something that's, that's, that's big. And it seems 
more commensurate with the scale of the problem. And I think it's, it's a lot easier to rally around yeah. that. Yeah. I wanted to ask about one, one other topic before we wrap, uh, which is nuclear energy. Um, so from a lot of things I've read, it seems like nuclear plants are going to play a role in a low carbon or decarbonized economy. Um, you know, renewables are inter- intermittent and we can't store the energy for uh, long enough to, to really be practical to like serve everybody's needs. Um, but then there's like this, I don't know how true this is, but this argument that like the left or like the Green New Deal type movements are not in favor of uh, uh, nuclear. And there's like almost no act, like philanthropic you know spending on nuclear power. So one, what do you think the role of nuclear is in a low carbon or decarbon economy? And two, what do you think like activists are saying and thinking about it at the moment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, I think nuclear is super tricky for a lot of reasons. Um, first, I think if we're going to do a rapid decarbonization while trying to minimize the instability that comes from it, I think nuclear is essential. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you compare nuclear to fossil fuels, uh, the, just the body count is, is completely... Uh, it's like nothing like nukes haven't killed anybody and fossil fuels have killed millions and millions of people. So when you're, when you're comparing uh, just the, the, you know, how dangerous they are from that standpoint, nukes are way safer and, uh, and uh, a lot better. Um, I think when one of the complications of nuclear is that storing the waste is still a tricky yep. process is it requires a lot of infrastructure and if our infrastructure is is going to be threatened by climate emergencies then storage of that waste becomes mm. trickier and uh and the risk of of that storage being you know uh disrupted and and having contamination occur is a lot higher when you're starting to talk about flooding uh you know unpredictable hurricanes and tornadoes and wildfires mm-hmm. and all of that. And um, so I think there is, that's another risk of nuclear is that we're going to be having a destabilized world and it requires stable infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, just from a, from a pure, you know, death count right now, fossil fuels are way, way worse than yeah. nuclear. So it's, it's definitely the safer, better path. Um I think it needs to be combined with renewables. I think it's just going to be necessary. It's the only way we're going to be meeting any kind of anything close to the electricity demand that there is right now. It's going to have to be uh, supplemented with with nukes and and renewables. The tricky political part of that is, one, nuclear plants are really expensive. Um, They're not usually uh, like... They require a lot yeah. of subsidies. Yeah, like super um, high upfront capital costs. Yeah, super expensive. Not not great on just like a free market or whatever, private market. Um, they require a lot of investment. They are scary to mm-hmm. people because of radiation, because of the accidents that have happened. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of viscerally, even though it's killed way less than fossil fuels, it's just kind of scary. It's like the nuclear bomb stuff, you know, they're different glowing radiation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
So, and that's really hard to get over. That's like I said, embedded in people's imaginations, not just the bomb, but the power. And I think um, it's hard to get over that. There is a lot of uh, sort of institutional opposition in the big green mm -hmm. space. So a lot of the, you know, Greenpeace built its organization on anti-nuclear. Uh, and I think a lot of that is still instructing how these organizations operate and, um, you know, just like Germany shutting down their nuclear plants to open coal plants is I think an example of that public yeah. fear and that sort of like, uh, this, this sort of irrational visceral aversion to, to something that's a lot safer and better. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard to get over that. Uh, I think putting the stats out there is, is helpful. Um, I don't know if it's enough. I think, I think the, the need for that really heavy upfront investment and the need for that to probably be in the form of subsidies can be good for the left. If it's something that's, that's incorporated in a larger program and, and is something that's, you know, we're using, we're justifying public ownership of electricity production through this massive infrastructure project that builds a lot of new mm -hmm. nuclear plants. That could be that could be positive, um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's a it's a tricky one. I think it's it's going to come down to necessity. If we just if we have something that says no more fossil fuels, we have to shut down the coal and the and the natural gas uh, for electricity production. We'll just the natural response is going to be okay. We can't quite fill this with renewables. Let's build some nuclear, and then the public's just going to have to be like, yeah, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, or the government's going to just have to do it against public opinion. You know, I don't know. Um, I, it's hard to see how that's going to play out, but it's probably just going to happen yeah. by necessity. And, and what, what are, you know, your peer group in this movement, like what are their thoughts on nuclear? How is it spoken about? Most of the discourse that I've seen around nuclear has been on Twitter, mm -hmm. unfortunately, <laughs> so a little, a little toxic. And, and that has basically looked like these weird tribal lines mm. getting drawn, as seems to just happen on Twitter all the time. So you get these, the, the like nuclear Twitter is full of people who are just a little insane. And they're just like, renewables are terrible and we can't have them. And nuclear is the best thing. And it's not even, you know, radioactive. <laughs> like, like you, you get some real, like I, I once had a pile on. Just I didn't I didn't even say anything negative about nuclear. I was like, yeah, we need nuclear, and somehow they construed that as me being against <laughs> nuclear. I, I don't know. It was a very it was a weird thing, and and they all just piled on, being like, nuclear is great, we need it. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. And then they but yeah. they just kept coming. So there's that. That's the, that's kind of a weird thing. That's the nuclear that's truthers <laughs> is this like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then on on this other in this other tribe, you have these kind of old greens and uh, and people who are really distrustful of of nuclear and, and afraid of it, um, and really gonna just resist it. Uh, and I think at every turn, I think most people are kind of in the ambivalent mm -hmm. zone and a little bit like, you know, if you if you're gonna be realistic about decarbonization um, and maintaining a high electricity production output, then you're going to need nuclear, yeah. you know, and that's, that's just the, the reality of it. Um, I think probably the best argument for not rushing into building a lot of nukes is the, 
unstable infrastructure and the unpredictable weather and, and all of these things that, that are going to make it difficult to safely store uh, radioactive waste. So I think the, the, uh, the most of the push needs to be on the renewable side. Mm-hmm. There has to be some nuke in the mix, but we just, we got to yeah. get rid of carbon. We got to stop the fossil fuels completely. So, um, that's a, yeah, that's yeah. a pretty good summary. Uh, so you mentioned a few things here for people to get involved with, but like, what would you plug? What recommendations in a nutshell would you make for people who want to get involved with this, want to personally make a change? I think the first thing is just to look and see if one of these new emergency group, you know, movements like Extinction Rebellion, like Sunrise, Climate Mobilization, uh, look and see if these groups have... Sunrise being the people behind Green New Deal, correct? Yes. Yeah, they're, they're the, the big group pushing that in the States right now. Yeah. Uh, look for local chapters. Uh, if you are part of DSA, uh, Democratic Socialists of America, look for the Eco-Socialist Working Group and, and try to plug in with them. Um, I think that's the first first step is just finding the, the people who are on the ground doing the stuff and try to get involved. Send an email, ask when they're meeting, get on the, get on the newsletter, join the Facebook group, whatever. Um, I think learning about it, it's such a huge, complex topic. And I think we all could use a little more literacy in, in all of these issues. And I think understanding it better really does, even though it's super depressing to read about, it really does, I think, help a little bit, have a, uh, a better sense of, uh, control. And like, if you, if you kind of have a sense of what's coming, you, it's, it's not as scary and it's not as, as hard to deal with. Um, and then, like I said, talking about it and, and really, uh, making sure that, you know, probably most of my conversations come around to this issue eventually for Mm -hmm. better or worse, probably not great for my popularity, (laughs) but, uh, you know, uh, I think it's, I think it's important that it's just, it's, it is this, like, it's, you're right. It's slower than a comet, but it is this big, huge threat that it's weird that we're not talking about more. And it's weird that the news is not talking about it every day. Um, and I think, you know, breaking through that and just making sure that it's something that is, is on people's minds. We're, we're reminding ourselves and other people about it is, is very important. Um, and then, yeah, I think there's a whole range of things. So that article had like 30 things that people could do uh, individually uh, that depend on whether you have like discretionary income, um, w- whether you have money to kind of invest in, in things or not, um, divided in half. And uh, yeah, I think, there's, I think there's a lot that people can be doing. It's, it's much bigger. A, a lot of these articles like to just say, here are the top five things. And it's like, buy vegan shoes or whatever you know it's 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 always stuff that's like um consumer focused and like yeah. kind of implicitly blaming you for the, you know climate change exactly you know the Koch brothers or something exactly yeah totally and um and like you know doing that stuff can be really good and and i don't want to say like people shouldn't do that they should do that yes but it's like it's a it's a huge issue and there's there's more to be done and there are more things that we can be doing and it's it's something that um I had this other piece that just tried to be talking about how our lifestyles can change. Uh, not, not like consumer lifestyles, but how just when we wake up in the morning and, and sort of frame how we spend our time that day, how does that change when you 
are, are oriented toward this big problem and you want to be doing something to nudge it in a better direction. And I don't think there's an, like a one concrete answer to that, to how your lifestyle should change, but I think it's something to be thinking about and, and engaging with uh, and trying to figure out if you wake up in the morning and you think about this and you want to do something about this, uh, where are the little points where you can intervene somehow? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are a lot of those that we don't always recognize or talk about, but it's worth thinking about. Cool. Cool. And uh, Sam, where can we find you online? Uh, Twitter is at SJMMCD. And that's probably the main spot. Cool. Oh, uh, maybe website is SamuelJMM.com. It's got all my writing up there. Cool. Cool. And some videos. Yeah, you've got some great writing. Uh, I'm sad I didn't get to all of it before this conversation, but I'm looking forward to continuing to read you and uh, follow your work. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to read yours. Yeah, man. Well, uh, glad, glad you're out there working and uh, looking forward to the rest of it. This has been the most interesting people I know. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes. I don't know why this matters, but every other podcast I listen to asks people to do this. Music is by me. Podcast design is by Jacob Abrowitz. I hope you enjoyed the show.